following podcast has adult themes, sexual content, and strong language, mostly because I have a potty mouth. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adam, and this is Where Is My Nigerian Prince? Each week, I will tell the tale of my search for love, the highs, the lows, the utter embarrassments, and the hopefully funny side of single life today. I also fully intend to rope in some friends and to uh, tell their stories along the way. Maybe together we can soothe the dating wounds of the entire world. Episode 2. Goodbye, my Kiwi Prince. It's fair to say that in this episode I will relate a story of possibly the saddest moment of my life, which leads to the biggest upheaval as well, and then sets the path for challenges to come. So, to quote Mrs. Doubtfire's husband, brace yourself, Effie. You might remember those school dances that I spoke of in episode one. Well, they struck again only a year later when I met John. He was a year older than me and so good looking that he glowed. I mean, it's fair to say that hindsight may have polished this particular image to within an inch of his life, but he was beautiful, athletic, and so unobtainable that I couldn't have talked to him even if I had courage. Have you ever had that feeling when you look at someone so good looking that it's hard to even acknowledge they are real? I'm sure the exact definition of who falls into this category is different for each of us, and usually the spell is quickly broken. Imagine David Beckham the first time you saw him, and then David Beckham the first time he talked. First you see the sun rise and it's captivating and beautiful. Then you realise it's a Death Star and it explodes. <laughs> As I mentioned, my memory might be tainted because, well, we never moved past the sunrise part of my analogy. In my eyes, this boy was a man and I loved him from the moment he pushed me out of the way at the punch bowl. I quickly scuttled back after that to my dark corner and took a position where I could glance at the object of my erection, I mean, <laughs> affection, and between appearing to inspect that bunting, which was just so unsafe. And nothing happened. Not a thing. My plan had worked perfectly. It was well executed and so depressing that I could explode. Until my third cup of punch, though, forced me out of the darkness to scurry along the edge of the room like I was a rat, nearing my destination. But before I was spotted, I quickly changed my plan And as I saw a group of boys who only weeks earlier had beaten the crap out of me for being a nerd and being an alleged faggot. You know, the type of boy, always looking for trouble, always making sure us nerds stayed nerds, always roaming the hall in a pack full of hate and not really knowing why. But I still needed to pee, but I couldn't use that bathroom. So I headed for a quiet spot where I knew I could take a pee and a throb. One advantage of being of interest to no one was that you soon learned you could breach security quickly and get out of the closely watched dance hall into to the safety of darkness with ease. Plus, it didn't hurt that the main person on duty that night was the lecherous music teacher who was busy ogling the younger and prettier boys anyway. <sighs> Let's not get into him. Once out, I almost ran to my spot and audibly sighed as I relieved myself and quickly moved back towards the hall. 
Before long, I heard the noise of some kind of scuffle going on in the direction of the bathrooms, so I stopped on the spot in a dark location where I could not be seen, and I hid, listening and shivering in fear as I heard them yell, Fuck off, you faggot! Get the fuck out of my school! And I saw those same boys who I had just avoided by the skin of my teeth, who had left me with a black eye and bruised ribs only weeks earlier, throw a figure into the darkness. They laughed and walked away as I stood frozen and the noise settled to a silence, and I heard the quiet but unmistakable sounds of a boy trying not to cry. Because boys don't cry. It took a few moments before the quiet released me from my cage of paralysis and I was able to slowly move towards the sobbing figure, eventually to whisper, Are you okay? The beautiful, watery blue eyes of John glinted with the reflected lights of the hall as he turned to look at me in fright. I immediately knelt down beside him and put my hand on his shoulder. I'm so sorry about them. They beat the shit out of me a few weeks ago. I don't know what their problem is. He smiled at me through his tears, and I loved him. All ration and intelligence was gone. Oh my god, I wanted to kiss him right there. But there was one thing that my love couldn't overcome, and it was fear. However, I did move closer, and I helped him to his feet. I just wanted a fucking pee, he said, as a tone of defiance grew in his voice and started to show in his frame as he righted himself and stood up tall. He made an obscene gesture in the direction of the bathrooms as I giggled and I told him that I knew the place that he could go. Oh my god, at this very moment writing this, I just realised it was the first time, and not the last, that I ever led a good-looking man into the bushes. <laughs> Anyway, after he had relieved himself and I had stood a discreet distance away, unable to see anything but wishing I could, he introduced himself to me and said he didn't want to go back inside yet. I was over the moon, as neither did I, so I again led us to a quiet spot I liked and we sat down on some steps. I really don't remember the topics of the ensuing conversation, but I do remember it flowed easy and we covered all those normal teenage subjects very quickly. And he apologised for bumping me by the punch bowl. It was apparently unintentional. Then out of the blue, he started to ask about when I was beat up. Don't know why, but I told him everything. All the detail no one else knew, or ever would, about the months of bullying that preceded it, the bad advice from my dad to fight back that escalated things, and how all anyone could ask afterwards was, what did you do to deserve it, Adam? And it wasn't long before I was the one with tears in my eyes. When John inched closer and put his arm around my shoulder, I almost cried harder, but I decided that was taking something genuine and trying to manipulate it for my gain. Just because I wanted him to hug me, it wasn't right to keep crying. He reassured me and showed kindness few had proffered before, and we both cheered up, until after a moment of silence, he asked another question. So, have you got a girlfriend? I stammered out a no to him and asserted that he must have one for sure. He denied it and asked why I would think that. A move I would later learn was called fishing for a compliment, and a lure that I swallowed hook, line and sinker. Because you're so good looking, the girls must love you. I couldn't see it, but I'm sure he blushed as he too asserted he was single, and a new uncomfortable silence fell between us as we sat there. 
somehow having moved closer than earlier and both with an arm around the back of the other. Then just as I was about to break the silence with some stupid comment, John's arm pulled me in and twisted me towards him as he turned to face me and he kissed me right there and I kissed him back. It was the most natural and right feeling kiss of my life so far. It was everything that Haley's kisses hadn't been, and much more. Both relaxed, realizing that John had taken a chance, and the odds had indeed been in his favor. Soon after, he admitted that the punch bowl hadn't actually been an accident. He had just wanted to be close to me, and it was the first dumb idea that came into his mind, which he quickly regretted when I scurried away, and we laughed about now. More than 20 years later, I look back on the memory of that night and I'm sure I've romanticized it, but I hold it clearly and dearly as the one time that I felt like things were on track. What do I mean by that, you might ask? Well, when you grow up in a world without any role models who are directly like you, you find yourself latching on to whatever you can. Where you want to be Barbie, not because she is a girl, but because she gets Ken. Where you have an action man toy because your parents will think you are normal. But really, you just want him to be your boyfriend. Where the relationships that you see modelled for you, even though they are heterosexual, lead you to believe they must be indicative of how your life should progress. Where you will meet cute when you're young, find your one true love and face adversity together for a happily ever after Disney romance white picket fence bollocks ever. I'm not bitter, <laughs> and sorry, we're edging up to the part of the story that's hard to tell, so I guess you can see that I was about to learn a very hard lesson about reality. John was my first true love, and I know I was his. We swapped phone numbers, and we spoke to each other every day after that. And do you remember from episode one how I talked about learning to lie so I could get what I wanted in a world that didn't understand me? Well... The world not only didn't understand me, it was actively hostile towards me now. So the lies became bigger and bigger. They morphed into stealing money from my part-time job so that I could fund my relationship. They became actions like sneaking out of my boarding school at night to meet my lover in the darkness of the park. And they became distance from the few friends I had as they couldn't know the truth. For about six wonderful months, I was in heaven. John and I learned everything there was to know about sex together. At least, I thought that at the time. And the uncomfortable foreign mess of my first time had morphed into the most natural act of love I could ever have imagined. His parents knew me fairly well as his friend that he had met in some inter-school sports day lie, but my parents knew nothing. Being pre-mobile phone days, talking on the phone was very different, and living in a boarding school meant the access to a phone was strictly via payphone. So John and I had a routine where I would call him at his house at a specific time each day and would chat. It was Monday after a rare weekend where I hadn't been able to see John when I excitedly dialed his number and there was no answer. I tried three times and there was nothing. Disappointed, I gave up and headed to my dorm room thinking something must have come up at school, which happened from time to time and I thought really nothing more of it. Until the next day and the day after that and until Friday that week when I was frightened beyond belief and finally... His mother answered the phone. She told me there had been a car accident. They had been in hospital all week, 
and she burst into tears when she told me that John had died last night. The silence was deafening as the foundation stone of my Jenga tower of lies and misdeeds was ripped away. Tears began to form in the silence on the phone as fear kicked in and forced them to hold back. No one in the world knew of my love, and the lies I had told to have him were now a prison that caged my grief. I hung up the phone, not saying goodbye, and leaving John's mum with no way to contact me again. I wiped my tears and disappeared to my dorm room, where there was no door to hide behind and cry. And I lay on my bed, facing the wall, fighting to control the emotions that overwhelmed every part of my body. But I couldn't hold back the Jenga tower now, as that very next day my stealing was exposed at work, and I found myself being whooped and yelled at to within an inch of life by my parents. As I lay in the fetal position, finally crying and shaking, receiving bruises I knew that I deserved, hearing the disappointment I knew that I was, and knowing I was worthless in the eyes of everyone who ever loved me, the fact that I had lost my true love too, and I would never be able to farewell him, or openly grieve for him, only meant I now knew what I must do. In the coming weeks, my parents forced me to make restitution to my ex-employer and tell the principal of my school about the shame I had forced upon them, who then doled out punishments as only a boarding school can by cancelling my home leave for a month and finally I found myself sitting crying in front of the only person I had left. The matron of the boarding school of my house, who provided the maternal element to a hundred boys, I wept and I told her the parts of the story which I could, about the lies and the stealing, and in the end I begged her, please don't hate me, you're all I have left. After a silence, she said something that was like a drop of hope in a sea of despair. Will you do it again, Adam? she asked, and I profusely said no. Then remember this, nothing is ever lost if you learn from your mistakes. And if you learn, I will always love you. I hugged her deeply, and that one moment is seared upon my heart. But now that I had done everything I must, I knew there was only one thing left to do. I knew there was nothing left in the world for me, and that everyone would be far better off without me. I knew that the only way I could help my heart that was broken, and stop ruining the lives of everyone who had ever loved me, the only way... To have my John back was to be gone. So that Saturday night, I once more snuck out of the dorm, and on a crystal clear night, at 2.30am, I found myself standing on the edge of a bridge. Tears ran down my face, as I knew the world would be better without me. People would be happier, and I slowly let go. but like some kind of beacon of truth that reached through the darkness. I heard those words again. Nothing is ever lost if you learn from your mistakes. And the words repeated, pulling me back, bringing me back onto the bridge. They repeated again until I found myself walking. And they repeated and repeated. And finally, I was back in my dorm room bed with a firm plan to never make those choices again. My matron saved my life. And I didn't make those choices again.
Though 24 years later, my parents still don't trust me. I can't really blame them, and I long ago forgave them. Their world was and is so different from mine. How are they ever to be any more than the sum of their parts? They did the best that country bumpkin boomers could do. I mean, boomers are frightened and scared of the new world we live in, so they have to do the best they can. But before this story is over, there is one more part to tell. Seven years after John's death, I would learn it wasn't quite over yet when I was walking through a shopping mall in Auckland and I felt a tap on my shoulder. Are you Adam? A female asked as I turned and realised I was looking at John's mother. In surprise, I automatically gave her a hug, having not seen her for so long, and she soon told me that a few months after John had died, she had gathered the courage to enter his room and begin to clear away his things. A few hours in, she had found hidden in the back of the drawer a diary, where John had written about his life, where he had kept his darkest secrets, and where he had gushed about his love for a boy called Adam. Barb had frantically tried to find me after that, but had soon learnt I was not going to John's school, and had realised we had covered our trail to keep our secrets safe. So she had packed a box of things and had kept them in her car, hoping that one day she would cross paths with me again. It was not long before she handed me that very box, gave me her number, and with a hug and a kiss, she was on her way. So I sat in my little old 1976 orange Toyota Corolla. Orange Ruffy was his name, given to him by my father. (laughs) And I opened the box that I'd gotten from Barb. There was the diary she had spoke of, and a number of other things. I would never show those things to another living soul, but I still have them, and on nights like tonight, I will pull out the diary and read it, and shed a tear for my John. But in the end, I will smile, and I will remember my first true love, and I will say goodbye, my Kiwi Prince. This has been a production of Adam Wright. I hold the copyright to this material. A huge thanks to my talented niece Grace Beard for turning my poorly written music into the theme music of Where's My Nigerian Prince. Next week, I will be back with episode three, where I'm going to abandon my slavish adherence to timelines and jump five years to defraud me, my Australian prince. But in the meantime, please let me know what you think. You can find Where's My Nigerian Prince on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, and Where'sMyNigerianPrince.com. Please spread the word. Oh, and don't forget the most important thing. Love yourself.